Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first podcast, our first Tallinn University podcast. Uh, I'm here today joined by my co-host. Brigitte Laura. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm Sergio Rodriguez. We'll be your host for today. It's called the Current Events Podcast because we will be talking about what's happening, you know, important topics, situations in university, and uh, hope hopefully we'll give you a good time. And today's theme is social media and how it affects our everyday life. We are students, Sergio and I, and we have our own opinions and different usages of social media. But today we have a really interesting guest with us, Katrin Diedenberg, who is a social media scientist, if you can say that. So we're going to have a really fun discussion with her and I hope you enjoy. Have fun listening. Shut up and sit down. Hello, Katrin. Hello. We're here today to discuss our topic of uh, social media and how, you know, your social media persona has an effect on your life as a university student. And we'd like to start off with, uh, like, some easy questions. So, um, what was your first thought when two students that you probably never met or remembered invited you to a, to a university podcast? Well, it's really nice to be invited to anything, uh, but um, this fall is really kind of densely packed for me. So Oof. my first uh, reaction to being invited to anything this year is uh, mild panic. And I think um, I was also not in Estonia where you initially asked me. I was at the conference of the Association of Internet Researchers. Mm -hmm. So um, listening to and talking about social media with a bunch of other people who kind of professionally study it. So I think I initially said no. (laughs) Yet here I am uh, because it's a cool topic and it's a cool project and I'm happy you invited me. Well, thank you. I mean, you were our first choice. I mean, and and we say this easily because (laughs) I personally have had a course with you and I thought it was very interesting. And um, in one of the courses, I noticed that uh, you talked a lot about your experience with social media and um, and the, the apps you use. So, you know, easy question. What is like your favorite app? Right now, my favorite app is Calm. Um, which is a meditation app, which I think was um, elected um, one of the best apps last year by a bunch of different kind of groups or corporations or list makers who do those things and kind of create these hierarchies of apps. I have only been using it for a short while, though, so it might be like this initial um, love affair that will pass as they always tend to pass when we get tired of our apps. But right now I can totally recommend it. It's wonderful. Does it have some sort of a social functionality or are you using it by yourself or can you like, you know, share? Because I feel like most apps nowadays, even if they're completely independent or for solo use, they always have some sort of, you know, share with your friends. Right. So this one has two. I never do. Um, so I only use it for my own purposes and um, in solitude, but it does kind of count the mindfulness minutes um, or the minutes you spend meditating and then offers you a chance to kind of post your successes or failures and how mindful you are. I've been abstaining from posting that. <laughs> so that's kind of weird, like posting about your mindfulness. <laughs> exactly. That is a little weird. Hence the non-posting from me. Hmm. So, for example, in terms of, um, in terms of my personal experience with uh, social media, I always find myself wondering that, you know, if, if we have this idea of social media where, you know, it's kind of like a nation Greece all over again. We're in, in these forums, in these apps, in these spaces where we're meant to be open and interact with people. Uh, I've always found myself confused by the fact that we have options to have, you know, um, private profiles and hide information because we're essentially editing ourselves. So, you know, what, what is your stance on, you know, open account versus private account? Well, that's an interesting question and the parallel you made there with the kind of um, public sphere or even the ancient versions of public sphere because people do not necessarily have consensus or even scholars uh, do not necessarily have consensus on whether social media can be considered a public sphere or whether our understanding of public sphere as this kind of space of open debate where everybody can participate on an equal footing is even something that has ever realistically existed as described or if it's a perhaps a bit of a ideal and um, even a sentimental ideal that people tend to kind of talk about and say, oh, in the good old days when we had public sphere, like we also say in the good old days when we had community, um, whereas both of those are imaginary categories. So I don't want to be prescriptive about people's social media use. I think it serves completely different social 
social, personal, cultural, political functions when you have an open account versus when you have a private account. Um, so it kind of comes down to what are you using it for? Are you making an informed choice about what you're using it for? Does it make sense to use it for that thing at that time? So yeah, I think both are fine. But, but that, that's that's uh, that's very interesting insight because um, discussing this with uh, with friends and colleagues, I often find that uh, people always seem to be so certain of their ideas about this, and uh, and they have these polarizing opinions without explanation. And it's very interesting because um, the way I look at it, like the uh, the ancient Greece uh, remark I made back then, they had these places, the forums where they just you know they met, dis- discussed, and caught up on politics, economics, philosophy, and it's only very- men. O- only men who were not slaves. Exactly, but it's it's very interesting because tracing back um, the our forums, you know, nineties, early two thousands, when we had the internet forums, I feel like um, it, it changed a lot in terms of um, the way we use it. Because again, it's this idea of this space, but then uh, we created the username, the perso- our, our internet persona behind this username, and I feel like now we're at a time and space where it's a mix of both. Where, you know, you have uh, things like Reddit, where people have these usernames and preserve their anonymity. But then you also have things like, you know, Facebook, Instagram, where you're exposing yourself. So what is um, what is your idea of this impact that, you know, like exposure can uh, can bring to your life? Well, again, a lot of stuff to unpack in this question. On the one hand, we have presentation or interacting or expressing yourself anonymously versus pseudonymously versus anonymously or from under your real name. Those are three very different things. And while some of the dominant social media platforms, notably Facebook, has been pushing for a one account per person and the account kind of merges under their real name so that that they can be identified back to their kind of legal persona, this has not always been so and it hasn't been always a norm. So anonymous and pseudonymous participation has always been a really important part of the internet and a lot of the kind of developers of the early internet, including Tim Berners-Lee, who is the developer of the World Wide Web, have spoken out quite forcefully about the importance of anonymity and pseudonymity. Uh, Because while Facebook public communication tends to create this very simplistic link between anonymity and bad behavior, trolling or or flaming or um, harassment or bullying, then there is a lot of research out there that has also shown that anonymity and pseudonymity have these pro-social benefits. So they allow for people to um, express themselves without fear of repercussion without fear of what they say being dismissed because of who they are in terms of their socio-demographic characteristics. It has been very important to allow people to search for information um, that might put them at danger or stigmatize them. Um, Here we can think of examples of young people in small communities looking for information on kind of minoritarian sexual identities or subcultures that they're interested in, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that simple. Um, It is also not as simple as saying that when you express yourself on social media from under your real name, then that is somehow authentic or real, and when you do so from under a pseudonym or anonymously, then it is not or it is fake. Because if we kind of bring this entire discussion back to how we understand authenticity or how we understand identity as such, then this idea that there is some sort of a true authentic self that we cover by masks or fakeness is kind of simplistic and not really what the past 150 years of social scholarship have told us. Rather, what they have have told us is that we are multifaceted. We are different in different situations. It is a sign of social and emotional intelligence to be able to perform ourselves in kind of ways that are suitable for the context, right? It is always very much dependent on other people and our interactions with other people. So I am who I am with you right now because you are here. It is no less true or authentic than what I am like when I go home and I interact with my family, but the two are very different. 
So I can be very different while presenting myself from under my real name on Facebook from what I am when I'm doing it under a pseudonym on Tumblr. And neither of these is necessarily insincere or inauthentic. Oh, the very good answer. Um, and um, touching on the, that idea of, you know, who you are and um, this uh, multifaceted um, being that we've all become, or let's say that we were, but we've begun to expose more because I feel like these, these, these are questions that have been raised because lately and at least, you know, for the broader crowd because of social media. C can you think, did you, do you think or believe that we can uh, change as people uh, in this, because or in this virtual space, you know, at least in comparison to, for example, the way we change in the real world per se? Do you mean, do we change as people as a result of our experiences online mm -hmm. or do we present ourselves as very different? I was I was going for the first one. Although okay. hold, on, hold on to that second thought. <laughs> so change is complicated. There are people who say that we don't significantly change, or if we do, we change by some very traumatic experiences. There are other people who say that we are change, that we shouldn't talk about what I am or what who someone is, but we should always be, talk about a permanent becoming. So we are all in this never-ending process of becoming ourselves, which means that we are constantly changing and absolutely everything changes us. The things we see and encounter online, the things we see and encounter offline, the ideas we hear about or read about, the people we interact with, the experiences we have, etc., etc. So I guess the, the question comes down to how significant of a change do we consider a change? But a simple answer is yes, absolutely. If we have any kind of meaningful interactions on social media, if we see or meet people that we think are interesting, if we find ideas that pique our curiosity, then that changes us. Mm -hmm. that, that's very interesting. And um, I have to say that I agree because uh, I did this experiment with myself recently that um, a few years ago, I used to use Facebook a lot more because where I come from, Facebook is, you know, still the, the number one social network it was very interesting because i went all the way to the end back into the times when i was you know a kid and i had all these uh like these all these requests to people you know send me more hay on heyday or something like that <laughs> and that was uh, it, it was kind of shocking to um, go through th through some of those things and have you know what we call the cringe moment or uh, or observe you know the way i behaved back then the things i posted and even up to today's standards and you know using today's filter and uh, in today's climate, uh, you know, political, social, it was very interesting to observe that uh, some of the things I did back then I wouldn't approve of or I would agree or some of the things I would even say that, you know, I, I would say that towards the way we portray ourselves, it's, it's always the self-correcting attitude where we're not only producing the, the stories of the now, but we also have the power to go back and edit the stories of the past. And, you know, and, and I feel like that takes me to a very interesting question, which is what kind of stories do you believe we can tell through social media? And what kind of stories do we seek? Because we have, you know, we're producers and consumers. So Absolutely. Thinking about your example, though, um, I want to kind of comment on one thing. You are not solely responsible for producing for picking a strategy or a tactic that you use to present yourself through. So yes, uh, we as users of social media kind of learn or become more discerning as we have more experience of using this particular social media platform, but also as we in general um, gain more life experience and become older. But there are also different trends or use cultures. So the, the way the kind of broadly accepted norms of how we use Facebook were completely different from how what they are today. So it wasn't you alone who was doing cringeworthy stuff. Everybody around you was doing cringeworthy <laughs> stuff. So it didn't seem that cringeworthy back then. Exactly. Even if you wouldn't have been a 12-year-old or however old you were then. I'm 19, so probably. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's interesting because you touched upon um, this very interesting um, topic of the, the rules. And uh, I thought it was very interesting because Elon Musk did a podcast with Joe Rogan not that uh, long ago. And skipping on the whole controversy part of it, he said something very interesting. He said that um, Instagram makes him sad because uh, he believes that people only seek things that make them sad. You know, we, we, tend, to, we tend to follow things that we, we somehow have missing in our lives. You know, we follow... Again, my example, I, I like cars, so I follow cars, cars that I can't own. I, can't, I will never own a Lamborghini, at least as far as I'm concerned. And uh, some people, you know, follow fashion models. Some people follow, like, um, 
architecture pages. And it's very interesting because he pointed out that um, looking at these things often made him sad because looking through these people's pages and uh, these articles and putting these likes on these things, he was essentially, you know, looking at things that he somehow feels he's uh, missing in his life. And he, uh, the, the comment that really hit me was the fact that he said, you know, I'm looking at these people. Their life is so perfect. They have all these things. They're so happy. You know, maybe, maybe I'm not that happy. Maybe I'm not that good of a person, not that great. And I don't have these things. What do you think on, you know, what do you think there should be like a set of rules for our behavior and our usage? You know, should there be a limit to, you know, how we should use things like a, a, a guidebook? Well, rules and guidebooks don't really help because we don't really like any formal rules. But uh, at the same time, there is a ton of um, informal rules like norms and values that very strongly guide our behavior. Um, what is interesting about this example that you brought is it's quite insightful um, for someone who isn't a kind of social media researcher, but um, in the case of Instagram, we, even though he's exceptional in many ways in terms of Instagram use, he is just an Instagram user, right? Yeah. It's quite insightful for, for just an Instagram user to be able to link the feelings and affect experienced from using the platform to what he himself chooses to follow. Because this gets lost in so many discussions about Instagram, because there are some recent studies that have tried to compare different platforms uh, in terms of what their possible effect is on young users' mental health or depression or anxiety or feelings of satisfaction with their life. And this is where these kind of simplified journalistic stories come from, which say Instagram is the worst app for young people's mental health yeah. or whatever. And what happens is that these treatments often miss the point of why, right? It is not Instagram. Instagram as a platform is filled with user-generated content. Uh, yes, different platforms can have more of some kinds of content than another because of how their own affordances shape and constrain what people think they can put there. A good example is that you won't find many women's nipples on Instagram because Instagram is very much afraid of women's nipples. Butts <laughs> are fine. Men's nipples are fine. Women's nipples are very, very scary. So there is a certain way how platforms direct this, but the point is that there is a, always a richness there. There are different kinds of Instagram Instagram accounts. There are these perfect Instagram accounts of influencers or internet celebrities or micro-influencers or just people who emulate their style, which are full of beautiful fall days and chestnuts and coffee and whatever beautiful desserts. Uh, but there are also really kind of intimate and personal accounts on Instagram. So what is important is what you choose to follow, right? So uh, while I'm not sure we are there yet in terms of there being norms of what people choose to follow. Um, there does seem to be a slightly growing awareness, or at least there should be more awareness. And whenever people talk about digital literacy issues, then I always say that that should be a part of it. That if, especially if we talk about vulnerable populations, like let's say young girls who follow supermodels. So instead of telling them, don't look at Instagram or use it less than an hour a day, or Instagram now saying you're all caught up to stop everybody from scrolling endlessly, somebody should tell these girls to also follow, in addition to the Fitzbo models, maybe some body positivity accounts or somebody who posts cats or somebody who is on recovery well, from eating disorders or, or somebody who posts food. So you would have more diversity. Because obviously our brains are very flexible. If we only badger it with very uniform content that communicates one message, then it's going to kind of align to that message. But you made your own stream. Mm -hmm. Nobody forced these accounts on it. Yeah, I mean, in the end, you fall by your own hand. <laughs> exactly. So the question is how knowledgeable we are about it. And I mean, it's very sad that Ellen is sad, but she should just follow some different accounts. Some happy accounts. Exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting to see that nowadays more and more influencers and content creators, whether it be on YouTube, Instagram or Twitter or any other social media, are realizing that real people like to see and hear real people. So they're being more vulnerable. They're sharing their 
bad days, maybe they're sharing their good experiences and maybe not so good experiences and people like that because they realize that oh these perfect content creators are also people and I've been especially uh, following this average girl size uh, hashtag because it represents the average teen or average young woman and I think there is a light at the end of the social media tunnel and everything is getting more positive because people are realizing exactly what you said that they create their own feed their social life i hope you're right part of me wants to just immediately agree with you because um as we get more knowledgeable or more skillful at using social media basically as we get used to it as it becomes normalized the way that other media or other technology has then we are more likely to become more balanced users right on the other hand we could be really cynical about this and see that the audiences started suffering from something that we can call perfection fatigue. Uh, Perfection stopped being a very efficient way of generating attention. And then professional attention seekers or attention makers started looking for alternatives that would still capture the eyeballs and bring them the likes. And then this kind of real person, um, authenticity performance is one of those. We also have this attention seeking through provocation, bad behavior, grotesque, things like, I don't know, eating 10 billion hot dogs really fast. Um, while giving social commentary or something so kind of like capitalizing on the gross, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, that essentially that unites people over something that is bad. So it's kind of like this neg- negative effect that still has a positive outcome. But as a, as a kind of scholar, I would position myself somewhere in between of these two. So I am with you in my desire to believe in the kind of positive of it. Um, I can't completely dismiss the fact that there are people who still capitalize um, off commodifying this kind of wake-up call people seem to be experiencing in terms of the possible ill effects of this staged perfection. But yeah, I guess we need to just kind of keep an eye on it so it doesn't become another mandatory ideal. So now you have to be average in the exactly correct way Um, otherwise you suck and it makes you sad everything makes people sad nowadays yeah i mean people in the past used to look at pictures of kitties and they used to be happy now look at them you know drinking their little milk and now even that makes people sad yeah because now if your cat doesn't have like 10 million followers on instagram your cat is nothing you're nothing (laughs) yeah i mean it, it it does tend to be that aggressive don't you find it sometimes again comes down to how you use it true so that that's kind of going to be my really boring answer to most of your questions <laughs> because um, starting from really obvious things like is is it a public account so you theoretically your content could be accessed by everybody who uses Instagram you know which is I think 900,000 million people or something like that not ni- that was 900 million not 900 we're, we're currently panicking our laptop oh, yeah, yeah, statistics, yeah. statistics? oh my god it? we have statistics somewhere we have failed you we're sorry um, and or if you have a private account and you know that the maximum amount of likes that you can get is I don't know 3 or 40 or something like that and you are just kind of banking on the fact that your mom likes it and if your mom doesn't like it it's it's not necessarily a sign that she doesn't like it but it might be a sign that she hasn't looked at her phone yet because your mom likes every single thing that you post um, so if she hasn't liked two posts, then you need to call your mom. It's coming. Because maybe they have lost their phone or something's wrong, you know. <laughs> so these use practices and what different kind of content or tokens of attention mean for particular people um, are quite different depending on their kind of use practices and use motivations. So there is still a lot of people whose cat is not on the Instagram and who don't get sad because of their cat if their cat doesn't have 50,000 likes or who get happy when they see gifts of baby animals, there's still a lot of people who do that. We just tend to hear about these really kind of outrageous outlier examples of people and their experiences. Yeah, there's a lot of bad statistics online, like the ones that say that, you know, chocolate cures depression. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) But... but She did get it right. Uh, As of June 2018, there are nearly 1 billion monthly active users on Instagram, which is hell a lot. (laughs) I mean, there is a professional among us, I mean... (laughs) Um, we touched on the on the content we produce, and I think um, the way these um, these networks are now fighting each other in some way is the uh, type of content you can produce. 
And when I say this, I'm essentially looking at stories because uh, I find it very interesting that, you know, in the past, people went to Facebook or Instagram or one social media because it agglomerated the, the, the largest amount of functions and you wanted to have all in one app. And I feel like Snapchat came and broke that because it only did the one thing and everyone used it because it only did that. It was hip, it was cool, it was different. That, that kind of started changing when Instagram came up with, uh, with stories. So what, what do you think on this idea of having, you know, everything in one place or dividing your attention throughout multiple apps? How do you think this affects you and should you, should you not? So I think why Snapchat became so popular when it came out um, builds on multiple things. On the one hand, it is the ephemeral content. So up until that point, social media had been persistent. That was one of its base affordances. Everything you put there stayed there. If you deleted it, it could still be maybe somewhere on a mirror account or somebody could have or on someone's server or whatever whereas snapchat while it also might be on their server at least tries to promise us that it is not right mm -hmm. um, that is one side of it but the other side of it is the audiences so what instagram and facebook do in particular facebook and what kind of what is facebook's key impact or contribution to the entire social media ecosystem and how it works is something that um, scholars call social convergence or context collapse so because uh, facebook promotes the real name uh, and because it became the predominant social media platform that went really kind of massive. It went outside of the typical subcultures who used different social media platforms before that. Um, it generates the situation where all of us have multiple different audiences or multiple different social groups relevant to us attached to the single account, right? So it's people that you went to high school with, um, your grandma, people that you work with, uh, your friends now. Uh, some people have people they have never met. And this is problematic from the perspective of kind of social psychology and group dynamics and interactions because we have already from 1956 a book by a sociologist uh, called Irving Goffman on the presentation of self in everyday life, obviously pre-social media. It was about face-to-face um, -face interactions. And he said that what we need in order to be able to kind of present a coherent self is the capacity to segregate our audiences, which means that if it's a funeral, then I behave in a, in a particular way. Uh, but funerals and weddings were actually his examples of, of complicated social settings, right? Because they, as our Facebook profile, bring in too many different people. Because otherwise, it's, uh, it's quite simple. You're out with your friends, you're your friend persona. You're at home with your grandparents, you're your grandchild persona. Those can be quite different. So you try not to be in situations where your grandma and your friends are together because that is going to be awkward for everyone included. There used to be very few occasions, like funerals and weddings, where contexts collapse like that and different audiences were brought in. Now we kind of perpetually live in this context collapse because everybody's Facebook collapses their contact. People have been pushing back against it for a while. So Facebook has tried to give us some tools to manage that, create groups, uh, manage what each post is seen by whom, but yeah. it is annoying and uncomfortable. information. Exactly. You know? But it's annoying and, and uncomfortable. So Snapchat kind of tapped into both of these things. The tiredness of persistence or the anxiety that comes with the persistence, especially when a whole generation of kids were taught by this these kind of scare tactics of saying, everything you put online will haunt you forever. <laughs> um, and this tiredness of context collapse. Because in Snapchat, you talk to either one person or very specific people. You know who your audiences are. You don't have to imagine your audience and your content disappears. So it kind of served completely um, different purposes. And then, yes, Instagram immediately noticed that it was liked by people. It was encroaching on their territory of visual um, self-presentation. Um, so they basically copied Snapchat by introducing stories. But, but that's very interesting. You, you say copy. And uh, I used to think that until a few months back when it came out and everyone was joking that, you know, even, even the Microsoft Office suite will have stories at some point. And it's very interesting to think of, uh, of it as a copy, but as it developed, I started looking at it and looking at these uh, lists of, you know, global social media rankings, started noticing that 
we have this contrast of, you know, social social media and what I call, you know, kind of like private social media. And, and by those, usually I separate, you know, like you have the Facebooks, the Instagrams, where you, you put one thing out and it's for everyone. And then you have things like Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, recently WeChat from China. And I, thought, I thought it was very interesting because what I saw in Instagram stories was the potential to, to hit both markets. You can still do this where you send things to people and you can be somewhat more unfiltered. Or, you know, you can share your personas individually. But uh, at the same time, it was very interesting because you could also put these stories out there for everyone. And uh, and, and this is essentially leading me to the point where I, I really question what, what, what kind of... Like, can, can the people that use the, these open social media networks and the closed chatting ones be the same people? Or, you know, can you pick sides eventually or develop onto one side or the other, depending on your personality? Well, um, lots of people use both or all of them, right? Like I have a Facebook account and I have an Instagram account and I have Snapchat, but I'm also a social media researcher, so I'm kind of... <laughs> You're you biased. Know, like, I have a lot of these accounts because I kind of need to know what's going on. But um, again, there's also different ways of using it with different um, audiences, right? So you you can have you can have private groups on Facebook. So in general, your, your Facebook might be not even if necessarily not open, then your audiences might be so large that you still feel like you're talking to a not entirely known or controlled audience. But then you can have closed secret groups on Facebook populated by four or ten people who understand all of your inside jokes. So you are still on Facebook. It's still your Facebook self-presentation, but they might be radically different from each other. There are some trends. Um, it's sometimes the kind of what you call the not social social media. Um, I know that marketers call it dark social, which is a stupid name because there isn't really much darkness about it. Um, I think they mean just in terms of like not in the spotlight. Um, so there ha there are some um, studies that kind of indicate a trend um, of um, younger users increasingly preferring the social media that is not in the spotlight or public or kind of intended to be so performative, but rather use the ones where they just, it's just mediated interaction with people, you know. But I guess we'll see. I think it's important to have different platforms, different apps um, for different purposes. I think it's super important to let people be anonymous or pseudonymous if they wish to. And more than anything else, it's really important who owns all these apps because they might be packaged differently. But if the single corporation owns all of the four apps you use, um, then on a macro scale, it still means that they shape and constrain such a large chunk of social life and sociality, which is the case. Facebook owns Facebook, it owns Instagram, it owns WhatsApp. It's, it seems that monopolization seems to become a problem in most of these cases nowadays. It seems that for some, I, but I'd say that the problem with this is that people are somehow seeking the privacy from, you know, the pre social media years at least I, I look at this and and, um, and say it because back then when Facebook came out I feel like people had this idea of you know it's amazing it's open you can put your whole life in it in a few years you'll be able to look back and it's just like your yearbook or your family photo album and I feel like right now you know with all the judgment and you know and the social climate of nowadays that people immediately judge you you know you've got the fine the not fine and the gray area seems to be a little bit more complicated and I find it very interesting that uh, people starting to seek this kind of like private chatting is kind of like this uh, safe zone and suddenly privacy seems to be the number one thing in uh, being social again. Well, again, we it's a matter of definition, right? Do we think of it as privacy or do we think of it as kind of social intelligence of segmenting or segregating your audiences, right? Partial privacy, are you trying to kind of better try to curate or manage who has access to what of you, which I guess is also a matter of privacy. Or we can also ask if our need for privacy has actually been always stable. There have been just these kind of fluctuations in what technical solutions we are offered or uh, where we are being kind of herded by what is made available. So uh, Facebook has always been kind of anti-privacy. So Mark Zuckerberg has, you know, actually said that privacy is dead and privacy is an old norm and that privacy uh, means that you have something to hide and all of these very, very weird things. Um, clearly, the less private people are, the better for their business model. 
So the more you generate content and the more you kind of openly or, or publicly interact around it, the more there is off Facebook, the, the more sizable Facebook is. So the more data they can capture and the more they can um, sell things that companies can attach their advertising to or whatever. So it might just be that initially we weren't paying attention or didn't notice that our desire for privacy or being able to segregate our audiences was kind of being herded into a direction that we don't like. And then as we noticed it, we we started adjusting. So we could say that the people have had a fairly stable need for privacy. It's always context specific, right? There is a really good theory about privacy um, that I think is really suitable for the kind of digital age anyway, which is the theory of contextual integrity, which says that as long as we feel that the information flows are suitable for the context, then we feel that our privacy is fine. We feel our privacy is threatened when the information flows wrongly for this context or across contexts. So it's not that I have a stable, unchanging need for a lot of privacy. It means that I have different privacy expectations in different contexts. When I am at home, when I'm with my best friend, when I'm anonymous on the internet, or when I am on Facebook. You mentioned you have uh, like accounts on multiple social social media apps because you do research social media. But I, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about using social media in interaction with your lecturers cause like, or using Facebook groups as a, a platform to share school projects and uh, materials because uh, it's quite common now to for lecturers to create a Facebook group and then just say, oh, please add yourself to the group and I'll share all the materials there. But how do you feel about using social media on a school level or on academic level? And how would you how do you feel about students uh, connecting with you via Facebook or Twitter or even Snapchat? Again, a great question and a complicated one. Um, on the one hand, we have these educational platforms. Uh, Tallinn University has Moodle. Some other universities have Blackboard. The problem is that nobody likes them <laughs> because they are not as intuitive, not as pretty, not as comfortable to use as some other ones are. So the reason for why uh, lecturers would create a Facebook group for a particular course is uh, the presumption, A, that everybody's already on it, and B, that everybody knows how to use it, right? As long as these presumptions hold... As long as these lecturers aren't met with a critical mass of students who say, I am not on Facebook, or I don't know how to use it, or I don't want to use it, this will will continue to be the case. Be- just because it's practical and comfortable, and it's the easiest for everybody to get it. So I use Moodle, and every time I have to tell students you need to get on Moodle, and every time there are some people who don't know how to use it, and it is annoying, and etc. On the other hand, it we could say it's quite problematic to uh, make a commercially owned platform um, that has a track record of violating our privacy, taking advantage of our data, and who makes profit out of our data and making it a mandatory part of your education. This is the this is in the hands of not only the lecturers, although if lecturers are listening, you know, I do invite you to think about whether you want to be doing this, uh, but also the students. If you don't want to do this, there are alternatives. Moodle is a little bit more annoying than Facebook for that, but it does the job, right? It's not like it doesn't do the job. So that's one part of it, um, the kind of really practical aspect of what is the easiest way to find everyone and give everyone something um, and make sure that they notice. Another aspect of it is the kind of connecting of students and um, teachers uh, with their personal accounts because the benefit of a group, right, is that you don't necessarily have to be friends with each other. The students don't have to be friends with each other and the and the um, instructor doesn't have to be friends with everyone, but there's a common space for talking. Friending is more complicated because it, again, As I said, I'm going to say that to every question. It depends on how every single person uses their Facebook. So if the teacher uses their Facebook as a very public kind of semi-professional forum and the student uses theirs more or less in the same way, then they might both enjoy being connected. Whereas if there is 
any kind of a mismatch in terms of the kind of uses and functions that the platform serves for the people, they might want to not connect. So I don't connect to my students on Facebook. My Twitter is public, everybody can follow it. I don't connect almost with anyone on Instagram because my Instagram is very private. So I have these layers of privacy where Instagram is private private, so it's legitimately my friends and family, whereas Facebook is my larger professional network because it is so international and it's the easiest to connect to these people on Facebook. But I guess my presentation of self includes more facets than just teacher. So it does not make me comfortable to friend my students. I might want to complain about them or something <laughs> uh-huh. like that. <laughs> yeah, I always feel kind of weird when your lecturer is like sending you a friend request like, um, you taught one course I took. Why do you want to connect with me? Am I somehow important? And it also feels weird because I, as a young woman, share, I don't know, maybe too many cat photos or like stupid videos. And I don't want to make myself look like a fool in the eyes of my lecturer who now wants to be my friend on Facebook for some whatever reason. Well, another interesting question here, however, is why do we even notice these things? This means that there is some sort of a tacit norm about accepting friend requests. It means that we must feel quite uncomfortable about rejecting a friend request, which is something that has emerged out of nowhere, in a sense, in 10 years and has become a thing. Like, why do we even care? I don't want to be a friend, so I don't accept it. It's not like I need to even respond to you. I can just leave it pending, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's actually something very interesting because as you were talking about the, the concept of, you know, this segregation we have on social media nowadays, one of the things I was thinking was that we somehow have this power nowadays to, you know, friend or unfriend people. But, you know, back in the old days, if you didn't like anyone, you could choose whether or not to, you know, tell them to their face or, you know, just be discreet about it. And I feel like nowadays there's this, uh, there's this power you have to completely shut these people off. You know, for example, in university, you might have to work in a group and these people create a group chat or a group group. And it's very interesting because in some cases, you know, you get friend requests from these people before you even meet them. And I always find these very interesting because and somehow somehow they're breaking this uh, this norm that most people have that, you know, to be friends with you online and to be friends, friends with you first. And and, you know, this goes the other way around. But then I think it's very interesting because essentially we're kind of skipping this part where we have this interaction with a person and we get to the whether we like them or not. We just have this friend request there and I'm like, accept, ignore. What, what, do you, what do you think about this uh, empowerment we have, per se? I think it is... Does it, it make us co- better people? It's co- <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing makes us better yeah. people. Um, everything can be used for good and evil. I think the difference, or I think the, the ability to manage it has come with a... as a response to this unprecedented access to a stream of consciousness thought process of people we are vaguely acquainted to, which we also didn't used to have. So if you would just meet people in kind of material world settings, then it is highly likely that it would take you much longer to figure out that you have vastly differing political views or that you just think that they're a bit of a douche or that is that okay to say that? It's yeah. fine. It's for students, I mean. <laughs> or, uh, or, that you, or you find them annoying, right? Because they wouldn't give you so much of this information about themselves in, in a short period of time. Obviously, again, not all people do that on social media either. There are a lot of people who very carefully choose what they post or they don't post at all. They kind of lurk, etc., etc. But if the people do post or comment, it is easier to quickly kind of understand if you think you like them or not. So this ability to easily then manage your like or dislike Mm -hmm. in multiple ways, some of them that are very obvious for the other people, but other of which are just protecting you from them, but they don't know that you don't like them, is a response to that, a fairly kind of nuanced response to that. But but it's interesting because in the cases of some people, it scares me a little bit that someone that is more introverted or uh, or shy or let's even say you know has somewhat some level of cowardice. Isn't it bad for that person to not have to face someone directly and just have this ability to you know delete them? For, for, I mean, easy scenario: you meet someone in a course, you know, a course you attend once, and uh, you meet someone and you know. 
they leave you in the state where maybe I want to know this person more, maybe I don't. And it happens a lot nowadays, or at least I observe so, that we have a lot of one-time contacts that, you know, a few years back, if you didn't get this person's phone, you didn't have a picture, you didn't know their address, you would lose them forever, you know. You'd, it'd be up for chance. And nowadays you have this uh, chance where, you know, this, this person sends you a friend request, and whether or not they get into your life is fully dependent on those two buttons, except <laughs> ignore. But nobody owes anyone else their friendship. People have always had, and it's fine to have mm -hmm. a choice. You, it's not a human right that everybody you meet and want to friend that they must friend you back. So, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, no, but it's very interesting because people nowadays, in some cases I've met people that, I have a lot of people on my friends pending. And sometimes I feel kind of bad for that. You know, if anyone out there is listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> did you know Did you know that the people you leave hanging are the ones who are like following you? Like when you go on your Facebook profile, you see that you have this many friends and this many friends are following you. Oh, These are so, the people you so leave creepy. pending. Yeah. But in, in the in the <laughs> other sense, it's it's like the ones that I do add, I always, you know, sometimes you wonder, like, did I do this because I meant it? Because I feel like yeah. when you're person to person, you immediately, it clicks. You know, I like this person, I don't. I mean, in some cases, you can even argue that it's, it's just first impression. You know, you might even talk to them, but there's always some feeling about someone. And I feel like when you leave it up to social media... Sometimes it might be up to this preconception of etiquette where, you know, oh, I've somehow, you know, met this person. I've been in the same room as them. I must accept them. I've seen them. I've shared a physical space with them. Well, and this is what I was also getting at. These norms are in the process of kind of gelling into something more identifiable, but are not there yet. So it is really interesting to think of. I don't have answers for you. I just, <laughs> I, you know, like if anybody oh well. wants to do a, a, their final thesis on it, then the norms around accepting friends request is a really good topic come talk to me not this year but next year. <laughs> because there are very different norms about it and i think these norms also differ quite a lot based on people's kind of overall friendship strategies or interaction strategies their extroversion their introversion uh, how they use their facebook I'm, i keep coming back to it it really depends on what you use your facebook for whether or not you want to add everyone who wants to add you sometimes it might be the other way you might realize that you have added so many people that you have the choice of either changing how you use Facebook or removing all of these people. So there is a kind of like this dynamic process going on around these things. And there are definitely norms attached to these things, but they are not universal. They're not shared by everyone. And we don't really very clearly know what they are yet. We do know that people have feelings about whether they're friended or friending or accepting or unaccepting, which is a really good indicator that it is a topic worth considering. So one final question. I think this one is interesting. Don't take it, you know, on the wrong side. Uh, if you could go back to your, you know, first year at university or your first degree or, you know, that experience, would you like to have had this kind of access or this kind of exposure, you know, access to, you know, our current, like, you know, access to social media? I've never thought about it like that. That's interesting. Because, I, you know, looking, again, you know, no preconception on age or anything, looking at, you know, my parents or other people I know that are slightly older than me or people that nowadays are still not engaged with social media, I always wonder, you know, their stories and their experiences, in some sense, they're very similar. But somehow social media has still affected my, my thoughts on that experience. And in some ways, they've had experiences that I will never have because I, have, I somehow have this exposure that, uh, that they didn't. Well, I mean, I had the internet, right? And I had, I remember I used to be a part of a chat room that was full of kind of pseudonymous people that I would chat to, but not, you know, not Facebook and not the abundance of apps and not the visual focus of it that is available now. I don't really have a good answer to this. And I feel like this is something that's going to now stick in the back of my brain and then I'm going to slowly <laughs> mull it over. But I don't have a really good in interesting answer to you now. I don't have an immediate knee-jerk yes or no, So, which comes from the fact that I know that social media is really complicated and can be used for multiple purposes. So I don't know. I guess my life would have been complicated in different ways. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but, that, but that's really interesting. 
because I mean, as a millennial, I will. I, I was born into the world of social media. I, I don't have the choice so much. I, I mean, unless I want to be Amish or something, I don't really have the option. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have the option to avoid this anymore. And I think it's uh, it's very interesting because, in a way, the people that engage with it, you know, in chat rooms or didn't engage with it at all, they're they're kind of this dying breed of a gener- you know, this kind of dying breed or vast generation of a time where maybe you could get away with more things, or bad or good, and you know, take it in a good way or a bad way. Well, there. There are people who do really bad things. Still. Exactly. In some way. I mean, that's a good thing in social media. It can bring those things to light. And there are people who opt out and disconnect either partially or entirely. It does have its cost. It's, it's kind of social cost. So it is a question of whether it's accessible to everyone equally or whether it reproduces existing kind of um, inequalities. But I guess it is a moving system. So we'll see if, if, there, is a, if, if there is a kind of move towards whether we want to call it dark social or non-illuminated social or kind of more kind of person-to-person social. Deep. It's like next century Illuminati. Then that might, again, change these dynamics completely because then if you're just talking to some people, you already know you're just doing it in a mediated way. It is a quite a different dynamic than when you are giving a kind of public performance that can be judged and sticks around and etc. Well, coming out of the social media world, we know that you have written a few books and I know you have one of them with you. It's your latest <laughs> book on selfies, am I right? Yes. Do you want to introduce that a bit? Because it's really interesting for Estonians it's weird for people to write analytical and scientific <laughs> books about selfies, but for an Estonian to do that, it, that's really, really good. I mean, it's, such, it's, it's just one of those things that I'd say right now we're all doing, but we're just doing it. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're doing it, but we're not thinking yeah. about it. But you can have thought about it. You have the guidebook, the Bible of the selfie. Well, it's not actually a how-to guide. Um, oh. It is a what is going on type of a book. Yes, so I did write a a book on social media more broadly in Estonian last year, which is this big, fat, thick thing um, and intended for basically um, university readers or academic readers or as a teaching material. It has a lot of citations and references in it and a lot of theory in it and it's a really kind kind of informative academic book. But then Emerald, which is this big global publisher originally from the UK, started this new series called Society Now, which is short, as I read from here, short, informed books explaining why our world is the way it is now. And their point is that they want these books to be written by academics who have been researching something that is kind of popular or publicly relevant that people are talking about, and they wanted to put the experts back in the center of debates so that these types of books wouldn't be written by journalists always. I'm not saying some journalists write wonderful, very informed books, but their point was that there are some scholars who study things that are kind of publicly relevant or people talk about them, but are often misunderstood. And then they thought that selfies would be one such thing. There's a lot of kind of anxiety around selfies, a lot of kind of judgment. Um, They get a lot of attention for something that is really kind of quite straightforward and banal. Some people get singled out for their selfies. Young girls' selfies are always narcissistic and gay men's selfies are always narcissistic and etc. etc. So they're very very entangled in a lot of our kind of historical anxieties. And this is what this book is about. So it basically looks at the big kind of misconceptions around selfies. It It historically traces the anxieties that we have around selfies. It kind of says what functions selfies serve. So what are we actually doing when we're taking selfies beyond just taking pictures of ourselves? Yeah. So, and it's very accessible. So that's, it's in English, but it is very accessible. The point of it is to be for an intelligent lay reader. So it has a very, very small amount of references in it. And I worked really hard on making it easy to read. Well, where can we buy that book? I don't know if you can buy it on the internet, or I mean, sorry, I don't know if you can buy it in a bookstore in Estonia, but you can buy it on the internet. Where so on the internet exactly? Everywhere, yeah. like Amazon. Really? Um, the World Wide Web. <laughs> wow. Everywhere. You've expanded your reach. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, this book was, it, it generated a lot of attention in the UK and uh, partially in some other countries um, where the publisher's PR team kind of pushed out the message that it was coming. So I've had some really interesting conversations with the journalists from the UK 
um, about this book, which was quite interesting. It sounds like an interesting read because uh, most of us carry around this um, this speaker out to the world, and we don't usually, you know, we don't have uh, most of us don't have the slightest idea of the effect our actions are having out there because you know it's just the virtual yeah. world. Do you find yourself taking a selfie and being like, why am I doing this right now? What is the purpose of this? <laughs> well, I, I keep one copy lying in Medit, so oh. it's just there. So if you if you're ever waiting for something, you feel free to leaf through that copy from there. Oh, okay. So I can't give it to you because I already gave it to that desk, <laughs> but you can go and read it there. <laughs> We're now going to try something. Do you have your phone with you? Yes. All right. We are going to attempt something that we would love for all of you to eventually share with us. Ah, here it is. Which is, uh, you know, if you've got an iPhone, you can go to your battery settings and on your device. Now and everyone listening, take <laughs> out your phones. <laughs> yeah, and you can... Open up your settings. Exactly. Go to the battery settings. And from there, you can check uh, how much you use different apps. So you can choose like the last 24 hours or the last uh, seven or 10 days, depending on uh, which uh, version of the iOS you have. So what are our stats here? So shall we do a top five? Uh, top five uh, by last 24 hours or last 10 days? What about both? Oh, what about both? <laughs> well, let's start then. I mean, if you got a new app, who knows? Maybe you've been going crazy about the one app. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you go first. Well, uh, first, right? no surprise. Uh, my most used app in the last 24 hours is Facebook. <laughs> Then uh, <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but my ne next used app is Candy Crush. We've all been there. Because <laughs> it is fun. It does take uh, take the stress away, as it says. I'm with you. <laughs> oh, it's it's really cool. Uh, and then uh, Messenger, although it is part of Facebook, uh, they are separate apps. Uh, and then uh, how how else? There's Instagram and Top Five, and really enough. Skype has lurked its way. Uh, People onto still the use it. Oh yeah, we it use that word. It also just takes a lot of battery. <laughs> oh wow. yeah. So what are yours, Katkin? Um, my first one is Maps. Uh, I am a very lost person apparently. <laughs> um, my second one is Instagram. Third one is Candy Crush. So I'm with you. No shaming. It's a very good stress reliever. My fourth one is Mail, and my fifth one is Messenger. Mm. Messenger is really down that list. Well, but it is on the list. Facebook isn't even on that list for me. Wow. That's interesting because uh, I th I feel like I've got something in common with Brig Brigitta here where um, number one is Messenger with, you know, 32% of my battery usage. Number two is Facebook. Then for some reason, YouTube specifies audio, even though you're not really able to just check out the audio. But mm -hmm. audio and then followed by Instagram and for all Google, Google Chrome users out there, don't, don't kill me, but Safari. Oh, yeah. I use Safari as well on my phone. <laughs> Safari's awesome. Now, I think a really cool thing to do, since, you know, the app world is ever-changing, would be to, you know, everyone go on to your last seven or ten days and check if there's any difference on that list. You know, did anything change in the last week? Oh, I have a difference. Uh, Candy Crush has peaked to the first spot uh, <laughs> Wow. <there. laughs> And uh, YouTube is on there because I find watching YouTube videos on my phone is way easier than opening up my laptop because I'm a really lazy person. <laughs> uh, Facebook has made it into my top five. Wow. In wow. the seven day one, uh, not in the 24 one. What happened there? <laughs> I mean, I do use Facebook. Apparently, I've just been really busy for the past 24 hours. Or... Facebook does consume your time a lot. Oh, yeah. Those, those quarter of an hour just go by. <laughs> Well, in my list, it's actually mostly the same, except now there's proof that I do something else aside from browsing social media. So number four was replaced by mail, not Gmail, not Outlook, mail. And um, YouTube dropped to number five. So yeah, I do things as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mainly seem to just be like trying to go places because Maps continues very high on both of my lists. <laughs> you see, I feel like part of me doesn't know how to use my phone because number six is home and lock screen. And it actually takes a lot of battery. Uh, home and lock screen is high for me too. I think it might be like a... Checking the time, Checking maybe? the time all the time, maybe, yeah. Oh, that says a lot. What happened to wristwatches? <laughs> oh, I do have a watch, actually. Same. I carry this thing around, and I feel like when I leave my phone somewhere, sure, I'll check my watch, but every time my phone is so much better. It has the yeah. exact minute there. <laughs> <laughs> right? I have no excuse here, because I do have a digital watch. I guess. But somehow it feels like... 
You're holding a friend if you're holding your phone in your hands. You feel to, safe. You have yeah. it with you. It can tell you honest, to go places, to do things. Yeah, you paid quite a lot of money for it, or maybe your parents or partner, but it's expensive. You feel like you have to use it. You feel an obligation to use it because you have it. Apparently, there's so many germs on this um, touchscreen, though. Very many germs. <laughs> so if you check your time all the time on it, maybe you need to like wipe it sometimes with an antibacterial wipe. I mean, think about it. It's like people used to say that money was the dirtiest thing you can touch. But now when you think about your phone, first of all, you can pay stuff with it. Then when you're talking on it, you're essentially spitting on it. And then you touch you touch everything with your hands, and then you're touching this thing all the time, all the time. And then you're taking this thing, and not just touching, like wiping your fingers around in every direction, tapping, swiping, and putting it on different surfaces. Yeah, and I mean, God knows where. And, and you even have awkward situations when you're you're eating, and your hands are greasy, oh, yeah. and you touch it, or your hands are busy, but you you must press whatever, and you go reach with your nose or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible. And then you take this thing into bed. Which is, you know, the place where people usually have the room. I must be clean for bed. This is the dirtiest thing. <laughs> okay, what do we take away from this episode? <laughs> mm. Social media is interesting. Differently has a lot of different elements. You, Katkenagdi, expert on that. I guess so, yeah. And uh, don't take your phone to bed because it's really dirty. Oh, yeah, keep it out of there. Don't get an infection or something. Maybe just get some active bacterial wipes. And uh, let us know in the comments of this post uh, what are your most used apps uh, if you feel like you want to share them no no judgment there i use candy crush <laughs> also let us know if uh, if you liked it um if you thought it was interesting and give us any feedback you might find useful for next time uh thank you catherine for joining us and thank you for finding time in your busy busy schedule <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me and that's a wrap <laughs>